pretty amazing that second verse at the end the waves and the winds still know waves and the winds still know they have to obey the voice of God and uh, that ought to give you some confidence tonight ought to give you some comfort uh, knowing that God is still fully in control and we're certainly grateful for that well if you would let's go back to Revelation and we're going to be primarily dealing and looking or beginning to look at the first two verses. And uh, we're going to deal with the subject tonight in kind of a, an introductory overview type of manner. We're going to be returning to this particular subject, this particular theme over the next couple of weeks. The revelation of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that the, this grand book begins by giving us the design or the theme of the entirety of the book. Now, many of the books of the Bible do not always begin by giving us the exact theme, the exact purpose of the book, yet Revelation does. We know many of the epistles written by the Apostle Paul uh, make mention of his authorship. It makes mention of the reason why he's writing. It makes mention of uh, the purpose of uh, where he is or who he's addressing it to. Revelation immediately announces... What you are getting ready to read is with regard of the revelation of Jesus Christ, hence the name of the book, the revelation. And we see that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of John, and not the revelation of the church per se, not the revelation of society, but the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly, notice the word must, shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Chapter 1 is a great preface. It is a great beginning. Uh, It is an introduction to the entirety of the book, and it contains, really, chapter 1 contains three big headings. Now, I probably won't make much reference to these after tonight, but this is the way when I begin studying a book, uh, I start very wide, and I start very big, and then I work down down to individual words. But we'll see, really, in these first two verses... Uh, we see what I'm going to call an apostolic inscription. And it's an inscription or a declaration that declares the origin and the design of the chapter, or in this case, the design of the entirety of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's really what these first two verses of chapter 1 are about. Verses 3 through 8 I've given it the heading of an apostolic benediction, pronouncing on all of those who pay regard to the contents of this book. In other words, verses 3 through 8 say, blessed is the person who reads this, hears the words, and keeps them. There is a blessing to hearing and reading and keeping them. I'm using the heading apostolic because we're going to learn about the apostleship here that John himself, as he's penning this letter, is going to uh, rightly take upon himself. 
And then verses 9 through 20, it is a glorious vision or an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. A glorious appearance, a glorious vision. This reality here that as this revelation is being delivered, John is in the privileged position of receiving this revelation personally. But yet we're going to learn that John was not in a what would be called by man standards a privileged or favored circumstance. Uh, John was in a difficult situation. So tonight we're really dealing with the preface, the preface of the book or this apostolic inscription, if you will, the design and the origin of it. Really, if you were to break now, again, break the big ideas down of all of Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 22, you have within it seven grand or glorious visions of the person and the work of Christ, primarily his work in this gospel age. Now, I'm saying that very carefully now because with the direction that, we're, 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 that the Scriptures are going to take us here is we're going to have to set and understand when and where and why and how all of this is taking place. And this number seven is not just a coincidental number. It is a number that appears in many different forms and many different descriptions. But ultimately, the book of Revelation is made up of seven visions or pictures of the work and the person of Jesus Christ in this gospel age. Now, in many ways, the book of Hebrews on Sunday morning has been preparing us for a jump into the book of Revelation. Uh, many of the characteristics we're learning about and we've learned about Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews, uh, we're seeing really them come to light when we start looking thoroughly at the book of Revelation. And even in this first chapter, we see that in these seven visions that John begins talking about, these seven visions that the Lord reveals to John, they have to do with what he has done, what he is doing, and what he shall do later. Remember, the work is being done by Christ himself. It's what Christ is doing in this world, what Christ has done in this world, and what Christ is going to do in this world that really is going to set the context. When Jesus announced to Peter that upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus was all but announcing to Peter, I'm announcing to you that everything that is happening in this world, what's going to happen to the church, what's going to happen uh, to, in this world and in this, in this life, has to do with Jesus Christ and his church. This is not just some random idea that goes out that says, uh, Jesus' work, and it's just general. No, it has to do with his work and his work through the church in the gospel age. Now, many times when we take on a daunting task like this, and we take on the daunting task of Revelation, Revelation is one of those books that we as preachers become very terrified of because of the enormity of it. But let me say something very clearly tonight. Revelation should be no more frightening to preach or teach than any other book of the Bible. It, because it is a frightening thing to stand up before people and to proclaim God's Word and do it in a manner that honors and glorifies God. No one should just stand up and say, here's what it says, 
and here's what I think you ought to know and not be sure of what they're saying. And that goes for any book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But somehow Revelation has gotten the reputation of being the book that nobody wants to tackle because it's just a fearful thing. If we take that Revelation is more fearful than any other book of the Bible, we're already starting on the wrong footing. Because it ought to be fearful for a man to stand up and preach the tiny book of Philemon just as terrifying as it is to preach the book of Revelation. Because it's all authoritative truth. Revelation is also the book that will cause the most controversy among people. Even non-believers will argue about the reason for the book of Revelation, even though they're not a believer in he who's being revealed, which is Jesus Christ. There is a sense that the world even uses terms like the apocalypse and Armageddon. They're unbelievers. They don't understand why they're saying it, but they're saying it because it's contained in the Bible. So there's an awareness of it. You could probably talk to many unbelievers and ask them, have you, familiar, have you ever heard about the book of Revelation? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I've heard about the book of Revelation. But we have to understand that when we're looking at these things, we have to know that as a believer, especially tonight, the entire purpose of the book of Revelation is to give assurance to God's children. This should not be a book that brings us to terror, per se, but should bring comfort to us knowing that what's going on and what has happened and what will happen is God carrying out his purposes through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why I don't have to be frightened by what I see on the television and what I see on the computer and what I see going on around me. Because I already know that what has happened, what will happen, and is happening is all according to the purposes of the work and the person of Jesus Christ in this gospel age. That is what leads me to say, I don't have to have anxiety about everything happening in this world. Nobody here is going to argue with me that there are not, they're just going to say, there's nothing terrible happening in this world. Tell that to the families that are school children. Tell that to the people who are going through this deep heartache and the darkness and the trials and the trouble and understand that what's happening in this world, the work and the person of Christ. Again, we don't understand that. If somebody, if somebody asked me, why do things like that happen? My only answer to you is, is the depravity of man on full display. And what sinful man is capable of. You notice how I didn't jump into any political arena. I just simply said, that's the depravity of man. And what's a frightening thought, and we talked about this while we were away, you realize the Bible says that in a sense, the Holy Spirit is restraining the evil right now, that it's not as bad as it could be. Now you stop for a minute and you think about that. You think about the restraining power of the Spirit being removed. What are we now looking at? But the book of Revelation brings comfort and assurance to God's children because we ultimately know that Jesus Christ is victorious over the world, over the flesh, and over the devil. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It reveals him by revealing to us who he is, what he does, what he will do. And the entirety of the book of Revelation, if you for one minute stop looking at Christ, you are going to get your eyes in the wrong place and you're going to get distracted. And you're going to end up on a trail you shouldn't have been on. And you're going to end up in one of these forums arguing with people over the wrong thing. Because I'm going to tell you, the book of Revelation can very quickly, if you don't stay at that task of looking to the work and the person of Christ, you're going to get off on a tangent and you're going to be arguing about the wrong thing. Hence, the debate that goes on between end-time prophecy, between good-intentioned, well-meaning people who are arguing more about how it's all going to end rather than what is the book really about? John, from the very get-go in chapter 1, is told to look. One of the first interactions is he looks behind him and he sees the very Christ himself. Ultimately, the revelation of Jesus Christ reveals to us these things. And we look to him with confident faith. And it assures us, as Paul wrote in the book of Romans, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now think about something that's more than conquerors. It's we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. So these seven big visions which John saw and records in the book of Revelation. And remember, it's all by divine inspiration. This is the inspired word of God. That means this inspired word of God is something that is being given directly to and to John himself. Now, as we think about what this divine inspiration means, and in these 22 chapters, again, remember, we're going to be tempted to run down the track way too far. But again, we're starting big, and we're going to narrow this down. These seven visions, and here's what these seven visions really are all about, and here's what the theme of each one of them, and you're going to notice there's a common theme. In chapters 1 through 3, vision number 1 of these seven is the description of Christ in the midst of His churches, the seven golden candlesticks in this world. It is Christ in the midst of His churches. Chapters 1 through 3, that's really what the entirety of them is about. It's about Him being in the midst of those seven churches. Vision number 2, Christ opening... And this is where some of the debate comes in. Christ opening and fulfilling the seven seals dealing with God's sovereign, eternal purposes. The seven seals are the thing when you ask a lot of believers, what do the seven seals mean? You are going to get a lot of different answers. You're going to get a lot of different answers about the seven trumpets. Well, guess what? We're not dealing with the seals or the trumpets. We're not even touching that right now. But yet, that's one of the main themes, and we see that running through chapters 4 through 7. In chapters 8 through 11, we see in this third vision, we see Christ answering the prayers of his people. We see him actually answering prayer. We also see him protecting his people from their enemies. And as part of his answering prayers, and part of his protecting them from their enemies, 
that's where he executes the seven trumpets of judgment. The trumpets are primarily dealing with judgment. And those trumpets and the judgment that's being poured out is with regard to his providential rule in this universe. He can pour out judgment because he is the authority. Providential rule. The fourth main vision, and we see this in chapters 12 through 14. We see Christ and his church being persecuted by not only Satan, but by world government and by false religion. Now, that's why if you are shocked, if you are shocked that world government is quickly and has been turning against the things of Christ, you should not be surprised by that. The book of Revelation has told you this is going to happen. The book of Revelation, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be, these are all things that are already should not be surprised. But what about false religion? We are, we are battling on a, on a scale that some people say, again, we can be creatures of the time in which we live. Uh, we are often people who say it's never been this bad before. Sin's never been this awful. We've never seen such persecution. But yet, then you go back to Cain and Abel and say, wait a minute, he killed his own brother. Sin has always been the very problem and the very core of what man's greatest problem is. And yet, persecution... World government, false religion, all of these things are pushing against, and which will be without success, ultimately, against the church and against the things of Christ. Verses, or chapter 15 through 16, we see Christ sending his angels to pour out the seven vials of wrath upon the earth. One of the blind spots in Christianity is the role of angels. Now, nothing is more misrepresented in the Christian circle than angels. There is this weird obsession with some people have with angels. And all forms and shapes. And I've been in homes where there's angels on every corner. An angel there and an angel there. But do you realize that the angels are referred to in Scripture as being messengers of God? These angels play a role in carrying out the purposes. So we'll see that in chapters 15 and 16. That might be in 2025. Who knows? The sixth main vision of these seven is we see references being made to Christ's victory or conquest over Babylon, over the beast, and over the false prophet. We see all these things, all these moving parts. And then vision seven, we see Christ's dominion over and the destruction of Satan and the glory of what we know as the new Jerusalem, and that's chapters 20 through 22. When you see these visions, you are seeing that which is being covered by the entire gospel age. You see the things that are happening. You see the things that have happened, the things that will happen. Uh, we, they are all telling the same story. There's prophecy, yes. 
But prophecy that does not look to Christ is just simply prophecy. The prophecies are pointing out to the work and the person of Jesus Christ and how this is being carried out in this world. They all tell us, ultimately, what the Lord has done, what He is doing, and what He shall do for the salvation of His people. That's why the number seven is so striking. Because you see it repeatedly. You see the seven golden candlesticks. You see the seven stars. You see the seven seals. You see the seven trumpets. You see the seven angels. You see the seven vials. Seven is the number of perfection, completion, and satisfaction. Each one of these seven big visions we're looking at, there is an assurance by the Spirit that gives us that there is this perfect rule of Christ that ultimately has already assured a complete and total victory. Those who are in Christ have never lost nor never will lose. Now we look in our our humanity, and this is where life gets really, really tough and a lot of different reasons. We look at martyrs who have died for the faith and we say, how awful. How sad. Humanly speaking, it is. But do you know that even in martyrdom, God has marked out from eternity those that would suffer martyrdom for His cause. That's one of the mysterious works of God you and I are never going to fully understand. That's why when you read books like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you read how did these people get burned to the stake and how did they endure what they endured because they counted it humbling to be counted worthy to suffer and to die for the cause of Christ. That's the whole secret to why they died the way they died. It's because of the reality that they understood the complete victory has already been attained. We measure everything in goals. We measure everything in, sadly, in what the, what the final score is, what the final outcome is. But in the gospel age and in the work of what Jesus Christ is doing, the end's already been determined. It's already over. It's already a defeated foe. And yet, here we have this complete victory. We have the eternal salvation of His church. He has promised to save His church. Now, that's a challenge for us. We either believe that or we don't believe that. He's promised to save his church. Now, you'll notice there in verse 1, it tells us that this revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now you see even the order of God the Father giving unto the Son, Jesus Christ, this revelation to show unto his servants. What a beautiful picture this is. The very message of revelation. The singular subject, the theme, the message of the entirety of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New, is the person, the work, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means no matter where you turn in the Bible, you are seeing what is supposed to be our understanding, the revelation of Christ. In creation, in His providence, in His sovereignty, in redemption... Colossians 1.18 puts it better than I could say it. It is the purpose of God that in all things He, that's Christ, might have the preeminence. The book of 
God, God's book, is a book about Christ. Read Luke 24 about those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when Jesus comes behind them on the day of resurrection and he's, he's talking with them and he, they don't understand that he begins to expound to them and explains to them. And he starts with Moses and the prophets, all things concerning him. Jesus' message that he gave to those two disciples was about himself. The Bible is a book about Christ. All the promises, all the blessings of God that have been given to sinful men and women are in Christ. Now, understand something tonight. If you approach the book of Revelation and you are not in Christ, this is what is so important. If you're not in Christ, the book of Revelation promises nothing but wrath and torment and judgment to come. So if you're outside of the body of Christ, the book of Revelation, it cannot get any worse. We got, we are, are we grasping that concept? Because that, th there is no comfort, there's no assurance. Because if I'm outside of Christ, I do not have anything to have comfort in. So we talk about the Revelation. Notice again what it says, verse 1. Things which must shortly come to pass. Now, we'll deal with this primarily more next week, but understand that the things which must shortly come to pass, when these were given to John, how much shorter is the time? And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who, John, bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Everything that's a blessing to the believer is a curse to the unbeliever. So what you and I see as a blessing, you realize that to an unbeliever, that's a curse. Everything that we see mercy in is wrath to the unbeliever. Everything that the believer sees, sees forgiveness in, the unbeliever will experience unforgiveness. The book of Revelation is a terrifying book especially for those who are outside of Christ. Love, mercy, and grace of God is in Christ, folks. That's why we know love. That's why we know mercy. That's why we know grace is because it has been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. If I want to see the Godhead, scripturally, where am I told, who am I told to look at? Christ. In Christ, I see the triune God. I see God. Christ is not only the central message of the Scriptures, He is the message. To understand that, folks, and I'm, I'm, I'm driving this home very deeply and intently tonight, is to have the very key that opens up the book of Revelation. Because if you just drive, the, if your key that you're going to try to understand Revelation is, is Armageddon, if that's the key you're going to try to use, you're going to miss it. If you even start with, am I amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial? Am I pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? If you start there, you're going to miss, you're not, you don't have the right key to open the lock. Now, I have a position on all those things. I have, a, I have a belief system that has arisen out of the scriptures as to where I believe that will stand. And as we go through that, that's going to begin to come out.
But I'm not going to start there. I'm not going to start there by telling you, well, here's what I believe about the end times, or here's what I am. But understanding, understanding here that the key that unlocks the book of Revelation, as well as the key that unlocks the entirety of the scripture, is what the very first words of this book are. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a treasure. The very last book of the Bible is Christ's revelation of himself to his servants or to his people. It's important to understand that it's not the revelation of John, but the revelation of Christ. It's been given to and recorded by John, and I also want to make sure this is very clear. It's not a book of revelations, plural. It's a revelation singular. It's kind of the similarity when we say the doctrines of the Bible. Well, there is one doctrine that's explained in many different ways. But if we're not careful, we can say, well, I got all kinds of doctrines. No, doctrine is what the Bible is, what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. That's the doctrine in which I believe. Now, there are subsets within that doctrine. But if I begin and I start saying, well, I'm, just, I'm just interested in this study because I want to see all the revelations. I want to understand every prophecy. I want to understand every allegory. I want to understand everything I see. Listen, I'm telling you right now, there are things that we are going to get to that unless you're filled with pride, you're not going to fully understand. If you're going to look at that and say, well, what? that's just, the, the human mind's going to struggle to even grasp all of these things. Again, we can get caught up in the wrong thing it's the revelation of Christ. There's a man by the name of William Hendrickson. He has a book that's entitled More Than Conquerors. And he makes two points that are very crucial to an understanding of the book of Revelation. And he says this. He says, first, the theme of the book is the victory of Christ and of his church over the dragon, over Satan and his helpers. He said, don't ever lose sight of the fact that the, there's, victory over, there's victory of Christ and his church over Satan. And he goes on to say that the apocalypse intends to show you as a believer that things even right now are not what they seem. That's good. They're not what they seem. God's purpose, he goes on to say, is not in jeopardy. Christ, his church, and his truth will be triumphant. It's not might be. It's as long as the wrong enemy doesn't come up. No, it will be triumphant. And the second point he makes is that it's about the visions that John describes. Each vision or each section of the book must be interpreted as a vision covering the gospel age. Each section gives us a description and we see that's rooted in the first and the second coming of Christ, but it's also rooted in Israel's history. We can't ignore Israel, of course. We would never do such a thing. But where confusion comes, he says, is when men try to mix the visions together and make them form a prophetic history of world events. Each vision is a picture of the person and the work of Christ in redemption, grace, and judgment throughout the gospel age. 
Now that's a simple rule we're going to follow. The simple rule that we're going to follow, first of all, is to not interpret the Scripture through things as they seem, but interpret the Scripture through looking to He who the book is about, which is Christ. Once we understand that, that will give us more clarity as to what the Scripture and what Revelation is about. Verse 3, and we'll finish with this tonight. He says, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Next week, we're going to delve more deeply into those verses and start looking at the, the depth of what the Bible is talking about. What does it mean to be blessed? You realize that, remember what I said, for the believer, it's a blessing. On the opposite side, for the unbeliever, it's a curse. So what does that verse mean? So next week, we'll deal primarily with what the substance of this particular book is about, what this particular letter is about. Again, it will be verse by verse. Tonight lays the foundation for where we're going. So hopefully that will give us a good start of where we are heading through this enormous task of studying through the book of Revelation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, and we thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we know that when we see Scripture, uh, Lord, when we think about who we are and what we are, we certainly are humbled and we feel, uh, Lord, as if we're not worthy to even approach you. But Lord, we understand that our approach is not based upon our understanding, our own merit, our own worthiness, but we're only able to approach you upon the merits of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'll help us as we begin this task of expounding this book. And Lord, may our hearts be set upon the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not be tempted to look and be distracted by the things that could so easily distract us, but that we will stay centered and focused on Jesus Christ and the revelation of him. Father, we thank you for this time and we thank you for your word. And may Christ truly be glorified in and through it all. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.